Genesis chapter 24. And let's, let's pray as we open up God's Word, as God's people gather together. God, it is simply astounding that You spoke. God, may we hear well. We need Your Spirit to enlighten us, to show us Your character, Your nature on these pages. And so, God, we ask during this time when we're gathered around Your Word that that would happen. That You'd equip Your people for works of ministry. That You'd edify us, build us up in love, and that You'd send us out changed, renewed, and refreshed to live for Your glory. God, if that's going to happen, You're going to do it. So we ask and invite You to do that very thing in our midst today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Is the existence of the people of God in jeopardy? In the balance? Teetering? Maybe on the brink of, of falling? If you were to listen to different sources, you, you, would, you would maybe think this. Like, look at Supreme Court decisions or elections and things that are going around us culturally. And you might think, like, the people of God are on the decline and on the brink of maybe collapsing altogether... And other things seem to be taking the day. And so the question could face us, and probably has in recent months and days. Like, is our existence as the people of God in jeopardy? Like, Do we need to be worried? Do we need to start having fears that maybe God isn't going to continue this on? Now this was a, a question that maybe not as forcefully pushed on us as it was forcefully pushed upon the people of Israel. Several times in their long and hard history, Israel would have been faced with that very question. Are we on the brink of destruction? Will we be utterly wiped off from the face of the earth? Because they were very, very close several, several times. And so this is a, a question of vital importance to the original readers of the book of Genesis, but to us today. Because a lot's at stake in this question is, are the people of God in the balance? Are they teetering? Are they, uh, is their existence going to continue? Or not. And here's why it matters. is because God, as we saw at the beginning of Genesis, created all things. And at the peak of His creation was the creation of man. Man was made in the image of God to represent Him, to rule for Him, to, to reveal His good character and nature, reflecting back to Him His goodness, His grace, His greatness, His holiness. And we know that the story from there, out of the overflow of God's goodness, He creates man. We know that man takes that goodness and rejects it, rebels against this good Creator God, and decides that another path would be better. Chooses to disobey, chooses to follow the words of the serpent, rather the words of God. And yet we, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that there's this awesome verse, like the, almost the first mention of the gospel right in Genesis 3 as God is even speaking to the serpent. He says that I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And here's what's going to happen. One from her, one from the woman, this seed of the woman is going to rise up and he's going to smash your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And from that time in the book of Genesis, we've seen two lines going on. We've seen the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We've seen through that, you know, we had Cain and Abel, that, that whole thing. We have Seth, seed of the woman, coming through him to Noah, on down to Abraham, seed of the woman. And through Abraham, through this person he chose, he says, I'm going to bring blessing to all of the nations of the earth through you, through your offspring. That is, the seed is going to come through Abraham. And here in Genesis chapter 24, we are on the brink, right, of, 
of what's going to happen with Abraham. He's getting very old. Are the people of God going to continue in existence or are they going to fall? So if Abraham's line doesn't continue, if he doesn't multiply in some way, then here's what's going on. We don't have a gospel. If, if his line falls, then what we have is no people of God. What we have is a God who is a liar and one that we can't trust. So this is all at stake here in Genesis chapter 24. And Genesis chapter 24 shows us God's supernatural, faithful, and and providential work to sustain and multiply His people. This is a long chapter, but that's what's going on. is that God is working providentially, supernaturally, faithfully to preserve, sustain, and even multiply His people. When their existence seems to be hanging in the balance, hanging by a thread, God provides a way for them to continue. And and isn't this so encouraging to hear for the people of God? Who many times, and maybe even when they originally read this, on the brink of walking into the promised land, thought, can we survive this? Are we going to be able to get through this? What an encouraging thought for us today. If we look around us, we think, we are on the outs in the world. That God keeps His people going by His power. So the existence of the people of God is immediately thrown into question in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1, when it says that Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Like the author wants to make us know, like Abraham's been old forever, but he is like really, really old at this point. Around 140. Like he's he's old. And and now at this point, as, as Abraham is old, it says that the Lord had blessed him in all things. But we know that Sarah, the kind of the mother of Israel, is dead. Buried her last time, right? She got her own tomb and everything. It was great. Now Abraham is really, really old, and we have no mother of Israel anymore. And so there's there's problems. The the father who is well advanced in years has a son, but this son isn't married. We have no idea where offspring is going to come from, where the seed is going to come from that will smash the head of the seed of the serpent. In other words, God's people, Abraham's offspring, are are close to being done. They're, they're, They're one breath away from it all being over. And no blessing has been spread to all the nations of the earth at this point. And so though God had blessed Abraham, there's there's no future for his family if things remain as they are. So we see God work. Verse 2. Abraham says to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now this was the custom of the day. The, the, the parents are going to kind of arrange a, a marriage for their children. So Abraham is working to secure a bride for his son, which once again is a big deal, tied to the promises of God. If this doesn't continue, then we have all sorts of problems. But he says, this can't be any woman. This can't be a Canaanite woman. It has to be a woman from a different country. And I think that there's good reason for him to say this. And one commentator said it better than I could. So I'll just read this to you. That he says that at this early stage... Intermarriage with the people of the land would risk assimilation into those people and thus jeopardize the covenant promises of the land to Abraham's descendants. In other words, there's there's something at stake when he says, not the Canaanites, that this land was promised to me and my offspring, and we don't want to go that 
route. I mean, later you see this over and over again in the law that God says, don't intermarry because they will lead you away from the covenant promises that I've given you and covenant faithfulness that I've put before you. And so Abraham says, go to my land where I'm from a long ways away in Mesopotamia and get a wife for my son Isaac there. It's, it's a good amount of travel for this person to undertake. It might have taken a month for them to get there. And so the, the servant has some good questions for Abraham as he hears this. He says in verse 5, he says, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Been a long ways back to where Abraham would have lived in the promised land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham says to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there, that the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Apparently that's the way to make a bond really secure, his hands and thighs. Glad that has passed out. As we hear Abraham talk to his servant, think about the faith of Abraham here. Like you see such faith from him. We've, we've come a long way. Now Abraham, he's, really, he's as old as dirt. So it's like it's about time you've grown to this point where you're making decisions based upon faith rather than just your own good wisdom. But he's doing something important here. He is thinking through this rightly as he's making these decisions. As he's thinking about the future of his people. He's thinking rightly about this. Here's what he is doing. That he has two reasons that he wants his son to marry someone from his own country. The first one that he gives is that it's from God's promises. This is what he's basing this decision on. He he says, here's God's promises to me and to my offspring, and because of that, we're going to make this decision. In other words, he's thinking through God's promises, God's words to him, and he's acting, and he's telling others to act in alignment with those promises. That is what faith is. It's always taking the word of God, the promises of God, and acting in alignment with it. That's what true faith is. And Abraham is acting in faith as he makes these decisions. So his knowledge and his understanding and his belief in God's promise is spilling over into even the most ordinary decisions of of let's find a wife for my son or or how we're going to do this, what country we're going to get them from. And this is what the, the true belief in God's word and God's promises always does. It spills over into even the most mundane, ordinary decisions of everyday life. All of our decisions, if we're to live a life by faith, are to be based on God's Word, God's promises. It doesn't directly speak to everything, but it gives us this mindset, a a way of thinking through things in view of God's Word. And so God's people need to recognize that if, if God's promises are true, then that affects everything. That affects every moment. That matters to everything that I do. For, Romans 14.23 says it this way, that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, everything should proceed from faith. Whether that's big or small, extraordinary, normal, all these things, everything should proceed from the people of God should be from faith. Belief in God's promises, belief in God's word, and making decisions, making our lives in alignment with God's promises and His word. This is what Abraham is doing here. He's soaked in the promises of God enough that they spill over to his decisions, his thinking, how he plans and, and works out his life. And this is, needs to mark our lives as well. Do we do this? Do we, do we soak in the promises of God and His word and have this knowledge of it so much that it spills over into every decision that we make? The video we saw earlier mentioned Jim Elliott, and I ran across across this famous quote of his earlier this week as well. 
Just it, it has this, this long standing to it, this, this quote. He is no fool, he says, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a great, great quote, right? But, but think about what he's doing here when he says this. He, he is saying this based upon the promises of God. Right? That you can't keep your life anyway, and the only right way to really gain your life is to actually to lose it. And so, why worry, what you, why worry about dealing with what you can't keep when you can gain what you, you can't lose? So he's, he's taking God's promises, and, and he's thinking through them, and he's basing his decisions, and even the words that he says, based off of those promises. And then he acts accordingly. Right? He gives up everything in order to gain. And that's how he would have seen it as well. That he's basing this on the promise of God that he too will be raised one day. That he's not concerned that even though he dies, he will live. He took God's word, God's promise, and he, and he let it apply to his life. Let his decisions be based on it. So he goes to a, a rainforest. He goes out to some Indians that have been known for their brutality. And he, he goes out so that he can give them the gospel. Because he believes the promises of God. That's, that's faith. That's what it is. And this won't happen if we don't know these promises. It won't happen if we don't know God's Word. It will not happen if we don't think through what is written in this book. We are to be people of this book. We say at Sojourn that we prioritize the Bible. That is, that this is our book. We need to live here. Not just give it a little touch. Like, this is where we have to be. We need to know God's promises and then let that spill over into every decision of our lives. Because real knowing, real believing always leads to doing based upon the knowledge that we have in God's promises. Isn't that what James says? Don't just be hearers of the word. If you're hearers, that's not even faith. Be doers of the word. That's what you need to be. So this is the first reason that Abraham says, go to this distant land. There's another reason. He says, the second reason that he tells the servant not to take Isaac back to to the Canaanite women, but take him to his own country, is he's assured of God's presence. Look at verse 7, the end of verse 7. Here's what he says. It says, you shall take a wife for my son from there because he's going to send his angel before you. So by faith, Abraham is, is now sure that God is going to aid this process. That he's going to be with them in this process. That he's going to work in the middle of this process. That he's going to bring prosperity, success to all that he is doing. In other words, he's trusting God and acting upon that trust that he has in God. And so this sets the stage for the servant to go on this quest as Abraham has put before him. So verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels, and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of, of evening, and the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today, and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. First thing he does is pray. I mean, this, this unnamed servant is awesome. Right? He, he goes out trying to faithfully carry out the task of his master. And he's faithful to God as well. He, the first thing he does is he prays. He and Abraham had planned this. They'd acted upon it. This journey would have taken a while. And yet he gets there and he gets down and prays. Maybe he's making the camel pray. So as he had him kneel down, my camels, you pray. I'll pray over here. We're all going to pray. But just a reminder that great planning, even great wisdom, even great faith, never, never negates the need to pray. And I think this, this servant illustrates that. that he, he does all of these things according to God's promise, God's covenant that He gave Abraham. He, he wants that to be known. He wants God's steadfast love to be known. He wants His covenant to be fulfilled. This is why he's acting. And so he doesn't rely on his own plan. He doesn't rely on his own sound judgment. He trusts God. He, he asks God. He's relying on God. He wants 
Guidance from God. But he, you have to have this question. They're like, well, how do you know? There's lots of women probably. How do you know you're going to have success? How do you know which woman is the right woman? Well, here's what he does. He, he puts out a fleece. You remember Gideon puts out a fleece? You know, get this wet, not this. He does. He, this is what he does here. He kind of puts out a fleece type prayer. Verse 13. He says this. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. That's a pretty specific prayer. Very detailed in how he does that. Have you ever prayed this way? Have you ever thought this way? Like, all right, God, here's how, what's going on. Like, let it be this and this and this and this, and line it out directly so to God. So when you're when you're seeking God's guidance, I've heard this all the time. When people are seeking to make a decision in life, which job should I take, or which which place should I move to? They they want to put on these type of prayers, like God, just do it this way. And this is a tactic that we want to employ. And if it isn't a tactic that you've actually employed, you have probably wanted to. Like, you've wanted to say, like, God, all right, here's what I want to do. Like, you could just make it clear if you would just do this, X, Y, and Z, and that would be really helpful for us. But should this be a tactic? Now, this is, this is not a passage on prayer. But tangent here for, for just should this, should this be the way that we pray? Because it's here we do. Like, should we pray this way? Well, I do think that there's this definite understanding from the New Testament. We should pray in all circumstances. For all things. We should pray without ceasing. And I don't think that these types of prayers are necessarily outside the bounds of what God can answer or bless or, or respond to at all. He could answer these type prayers for us. No doubt. He probably has for some of you. But I think that we need to be careful in praying this way. That I don't think this is the model prayer. Jesus gives us that later. Why do we need to be careful when praying this way? Because, or encouraging others to pray this way. We need to be careful because of our own motives. Now here's the problem. Is that often the, the motive that we have for, for praying for this. He's, he's essentially he's praying for a sign. We, the, the motive we often have when praying for some sort of sign. Has me at the center and God kind of working around that. Instead of the other way around, where God is at the center and us just saying, like, however I get to the center, God, you show me that. I want you and your will. And we have such deceitful hearts. Now, we have to know this. We have such deceitful hearts that we will look to grab a hold of anything that will justify what we actually already want. And if that's not God, then we have big problems in prayer. That we will look for something, anything, any sort of sign to grab a hold of. To justify our own selfish desires and our own selfish prayers. And then if we don't actually get what we want, then we, you know, we, we quote some music. Say, well, if God closes the door, He's going to open a window somewhere. <laughs> I've heard this so often, though, in relation to dating and marriage. Like, how do I know if this is the one? And we put fleeces out. Or how do I know if I should divorce this person? We, we put, we'll put a fleece out. And like, God, here's the sign. Right? I've heard this all sorts of times. I had this friend in Stillwater who was dating this girl, and he said basically, like, what I wanted in a girl was that she had X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that I remember he said was that she drives a forerunner. <laughs> Nothing wrong with wanting a girl that drives a forerunner. But he was, like, convinced that, that this was part of the formula for him, that this was the right girl to be dating. Like, maybe. Or maybe you just think she's hot and want to date her. Like,. <laughs> That could be part of it too. 
And that's what we do though, right? When we have motives of like, I really just like this girl, and she happens to have all these things that I think that I wanted all along, we justify it. And sometimes when we do that, we go into dangerous, dangerous territory. And so we have to be careful. But beyond this, beyond just our own motives, we're in a, we're in a different place than a servant, right? Alright, we have all of this scripture given to us, and we're on the other side looking back. So let's think through that, that he doesn't have God's word. God's Word is God's will declared to us. He doesn't know God's will. He doesn't have it written out to Him. He knows God's promises. It's been passed down to Him from Abraham. He doesn't have God's Word in front of Him. He doesn't have God's Spirit in Him. And so we're in a much, much different place. We have God's Word. His declared will to us. Here's how I want you to live. We have His Spirit inside of us, giving us guidance, conviction, giving us wisdom, enlightening us. He's given us His people around us to speak truth, to to give counsel. We have all of these things around us that we, we may not need to pray like that, necessarily. Not to say that it's wrong. We, we should pray specifically like this man. But we need to pray, as I think we're going to see this man does, Your will be done, God. Not mine, ultimately, but, but yours. That should be our motive. And then when we pray that way, even if we pray specifically, even if we pray for a sign, we start scouring the Word of God, listening to His promises, listening to His will for us, and then we trust it. We talk to others about it, and we let the Spirit guide us in those decisions. So that's a tangent on prayer that's really not the point of the text, but you're welcome. (laughs) If it was helpful, take it. If not, just get rid of it. The servant prays for a sign, but but he doesn't pray for a sign to strengthen his own own faith. I think that's clear. He's praying for a sign to know God's will. He's so set on doing God's will that he asks for help. He's relying on God for success in doing God's will. That's what he wants. And success for him doesn't look like him getting all these accolades. Success for him looks like Abraham's family being shown God's covenant faithfulness, being shown God's steadfast love. That's what success is for him. And so he sets out this very specific prayer for this woman, which in fact is a pretty high bar. She has to do these X, Y, Z things. There's a lot of things here. Um, I don't know how much a camel drinks, but I've heard it's a lot, especially after a long journey across some deserty land. So he, he has set this bar pretty high for this woman, that this woman is going to have to want to water a foreign man, that's a mysterious man, and uh, whoever is in his company. And then along with that, there's also these ten thirsty camels that she's going to need to drink. And, and I'm guessing that her water jar isn't that big. To hold the capacity for watering tin camels very quickly. So th- this is a really high bar. And so what this girl is going to have to do is that she's going to have to show some, some hospitality and some hard work. Like there's going to be some character revealing in this process that he has laid out before the Lord. And wouldn't you know it, verse 15, a girl comes along. Before he'd finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. We, we saw that at the end of chapter 22, that, that God is kind of linking these all together. She came out with her jar of water on her shoulder. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. It is assuring that if this were to be a maritable woman, that, that the offspring would be offspring of Isaac. So... She had known no man. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking, which could have been 
quite a lot. So she quickly empties her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for the camels as well. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So far, how specific this prayer was. She is passing with flying colors. It's amazing how they're linking up. But he's still waiting. You notice that. Like he hasn't jumped the gun. He hasn't gotten overly excited. So this is for sure the one. There's all sorts of hurdles to pass still. And so he continues. He, he's waiting. He's expected, but he's waiting. As you continue on, he says in verse 22, When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, which we know would be a, a nose ring. We see that later. Weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Right, so thinking that she might be the one and wanting to thank her, he gets a gold ring, he puts it on her nose, he puts bracelets on. Like, this is how you bag a classy lady. You get that ring, you put it in the nose, like get some bracelets. I'm actually really sad that we don't have home group tonight because we've had some really good dating, marriage ideas in our group. And this could have been a really good topic of discussion. But there's another important hurdle for her. Is she from the right family? Of course, she affirms she is from Abraham's family line. In other words, this is a fit that, that Nahor is connected with Abraham. And, and it seems that indeed God has prospered the journey as we've gone up to this point. And so the servant who had, who had planned, who had prayed, who had acted, he stops after praying to God and he worships God. Verse 26 says this, The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinmen. And so his asking for a sign only served in the end to show God's power, to show God's grace, and he rightly turns in praise to God for it. In other words, he's openly testifying that God has led him to this point. That God's providential hand has brought about success, that has brought about the prosperity that he'd wanted when he saw this woman. So he takes no credit, he takes no glory for himself for picking, oh, I went to the right spot, at least I went at the right time, all these things. No, God led. God prospered. God gave success. And so if you're praying for a sign, that ought to be the end if God delivers. That God receives the glory for all that he has done. And so even at this point, with all of these clear indicators, there's still some tension in the story. You think, alright, alright. Let's wrap this thing up. It's a done deal. Why do we need 67 verses to keep going? Like, no, there's still more hurdles that this servant needs to go through. And the next hurdle is going to come with Rebecca's family. Verse 29. Rebecca has a brother whose name is Laban. Laban's going to factor into the story pretty big later, but we see a decent amount about him here. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the, the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebecca, Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And then food was set before him to eat. Now Laban is really interesting and he starts to show his colors here because Laban only wants to go out to this man after he sees the, the, the financial wealth that, that is shown here, that's displayed here. He sees the ring, he sees the bracelets, he knows this man's wealth. Then he wants to go out to him and meet him and he greets him very, very kindly. 
But this servant is not deterred by Laban at this point. He's focused on the task that he's been sent to. It's at the end of verse 33. He says, I'm not going to eat until I have said what I have to say. So he said, speak on. I said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master has made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and say, and, and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And so what he's doing is he's laying out the marriage proposal, and, and he's both wise and convincing in this. And I think he needs to be, because Laban seems to be kind of a, a, a trickster. So he's wise and convincing, and he appeals to them. Abraham's wealthy, he has one heir, he's going to receive all of the inheritance, and so whoever marries into this family is going to receive that. And so he lays out the marriage, giving them full knowledge of of Isaac and his situation, and then he kind of recalls the events of the day, and how he's guided by God's hand, God's providential hand, and concludes with verse 48. He says this at 48. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, it's decision time. Like, we came here, here's what God has blessed, and it seems like Rebecca is the one, but after retelling all of this, God has guided this, He's clearly had His hand upon this. Now we need to make a decision. So what had started with prayer ended with praise. And you notice how many times this servant has the Lord and God upon his lips over and over and over again. And he says, God has worked. God has prospered. That's a question all through the chapter. Is it God going to prosper this? And he's definitive. And he looks back on the events of the day and all that has transpired, all that has happened with this woman, with Rebecca at the well. He says... This is the work of God. This is the hand of God. It's as if he can't look back on these things without acknowledging God's hand in the middle of it. And the unmistakable hand of God, the providence of God, even persuades Bethuel and his household, Rebekah's family. Verse 50 says this. It says, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And so he's lavishing upon them almost like the, the, the bride price. And so it seems like the, the deal has been sealed. Like this is the end of the matter. But, but more tension comes in the morning. Verse 54. And he said that the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. And her brother, this would be Laban, and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days, and after that she may go. So this sounds like ten days. That doesn't sound like much. You're getting ready to say goodbye to your daughter or your sister for a long, long time. But this, this term is actually a very fluid term, a very ambiguous term. And so ten days could be ten days. Or it could be like, ah, uh, 10 days, 2 years, whatever. Just sometime in there, just let's, let's remain here for a while and then we'll just figure it out as we go. And you know that Laban is going to do this later. 
So, so Laban is, is not really the, the most um, helpful person. He seems to be actually pretty treacherous with his dealings, probably to get something for himself. And so when he says 10 days, his intent may be years. You just keep pouring these blessings out upon us and we'll keep Rebecca here just fine. But the servant, once again, showing his faithfulness, showing his character, is intent on finishing the matter. He's intent on finishing and acting in accordance with God's providence. And he responds like this, verse 56. He says to him, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. That says God has been guiding us this entire time. He's been working in the middle of all that's been going on. So let's act accordingly. Let's, let's not get in the way of all that God has been doing. Let's act in alignment with all that God has done with His providential hand. And so they call Rebecca and have her decide. Verse 57, it continues. They said, let's, let's just call the young woman, ask her. And they, said, call, they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. I will go. So they sent Rebecca away. And their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men are sent away. And so Rebecca is, is portrayed again and again in this, this story as a woman who has good character. She's displayed very positively. She shows hospitality to a foreigner. She shows a willingness to work hard to serve others. This is in contrast to her brother who only wants to come out and serve when he sees the wealth and the riches that she has been bestowed. Again, in contrast to her brother who, who's waffling like, yeah, let's go, this is from the Lord, to the next one like, ah, oh, give us ten days. She says, no, I'm going to go. So she's decisive. There's a contrast between Laban and her sister. She's decisive in leaving. And and seemingly she does this in compliance with, with God's clear guidance, clear direction. And so like Abraham left his family and went to another land, it seems like this is exactly what she is doing. And she is actually given words of blessing like Abraham received in 59 and 60. As she goes, they say, blessed, they say, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Now, if you flip over a few pages, you can compare that to chapter 22, where God blesses Abraham. He says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So it's interesting how closely connected and how parallel these calls for Rebekah and Abraham really are. In other words, Rebekah's call and departure and blessing are presented in in Abrahamic ways. She's, She's... She's factoring into the situation as a prominent figure in the story. Maybe even a a picture of of faith in her deciding to leave. But even with all of that, there's there's still one more question. Hopefully you you have this on your mind. Like, does Isaac even want her? Like, yeah, sight unseen, this woman's coming back to be like, would Isaac even want anything to do with her? And so this is the, the final hurdle. Is Isaac going to accept her? Well, good thing that the servant had ten camels, because it seems like quite the entourage goes back with him. Verse 63, Isaac went out to meditate, and he has these all of Rebekah and her, her people with her, and him and his people, they're all going. And Isaac, who went out to the, the meditate in the field toward evening, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw, behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother. And he took Rebekah and became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. 
So the last hurdle in this love story of, of Isaac and Rebekah is overcome. That he wants to have her. That he welcomes her into the tent. That he, he becomes her wife. He loves her. He becomes her husband and he loves her as his wife. So in other words, we, we get to the end of the story and God has granted complete success to the journey. God has guided providentially, kind of invisibly, behind the scenes. We don't see His direct intervention. We see God working, though, the entire time to bring about a wife for Isaac. That the promised line may continue. That God granted success. And it says at the end that they entered into Sarah's tent. In, in other words, that, that Rebecca now has become this, this prominent woman in, in Israel. Prominent woman in the camp. She is now the kind of the mother of Israel. That means... That means that God's people now have a future. There's a woman in the tent. There's a wife for Isaac. That means that the promise that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12 of offspring. That means that the promise that He gave in chapter 3 of a seed of the woman now can move forward. That now all of those things are are. are are not hanging in the balance and teetering anymore, that God has provided a way for His promises to be completed, to be fulfilled. Amen. So this is the question again. Is the existence of God's people hanging in the balance? Well, yes. Many times over, if you read the Scripture, yes. Like if you're looking at it from a human view, yes. Absolutely, there is time and time again when God's people are on the brink of distinction, the brink of being wiped out. They are taken into captivity, wiped out of their homeland, many of them slaughtered, multiple armies around them that are much bigger than them. Then they're put back into the promised land and they're puny, they're tiny, they have no control over things. I mean, over and over and over again, there's this tension in the story. Are God's people going to continue or not? And tied up with that is, are God's promises going to be fulfilled or not. And time and time and time again God supernaturally, providentially faithfully intervenes to sustain and multiply His people. In two consecutive chapters, may not have been like the biggest blockbuster chapters of Genesis in your world, chapter 23 and 24, but in two consecutive chapters, here's what God has done. He has made good on His promise of land as Abraham secures a place in the land that God had promised him. And He makes good on His promise that your offspring will inherit this land. That one from you will come and you will be a blessing to the nations. He's made good on both of those promises of land and offspring in Genesis 23 and 24. And so for us as the people of God today, we get to look at these things and say, yeah, we can rely upon God because He is faithful. So we can, we can question, is, is our existence, is the, the church's existence hanging in the balance? Is it, is it teetering? Are, are we on the brink of destruction in 2016, 17? I mean, like we are facing worldwide, maybe not here, worldwide. Like we, Christians are being killed at a rate that they've never been killed. Around us, we, we look at the cultural mood of our day. Christians are more disliked and pushed to the edges than they have ever been before in America. Are we in decline? Are we going to pass away? Is our existence in the balance? And if we base our answer upon military might, we could say, yeah, maybe. If we base our answer based on the cultural winds of the day, we say, yep, you're probably going to lose this when you're on the wrong side of history. If we base our answer based on our population, our strength, our might, all the answer could be maybe. We might disappear from the face of the earth. But God supernaturally, providentially, and faithfully rules this world. 
And He made a promise. He says in Matthew 16, says this to Peter, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is that we don't have to question if the church and the people of God are going to be in existence. That one day, this is going to be made known to everybody. That God's people will remain on the earth until the earth doesn't remain. And then God's people are still going to remain in a new heaven and a new earth. And that we will live forevermore. That God has guaranteed that we're going to be sustained. And He will guarantee provision for that sustenance. And He will make sure that we prevail. So what this does is it cuts against our worries. Have you looked around in the culture and thought, man, we're, we're the losers now. We don't have to worry about that. Have you had all these fears of what's going to happen to us in America and in the world as Christians? We don't have to worry about that. Have you thought about all the threats that are poured upon us? God has guaranteed that we will prevail. The gates of hell even won't prevail against His church. This means that for believers there's no retreat. No matter what threatens, there is no retreat. Why would you retreat when the victory has already been guaranteed? So we press forward. Knowing that God has guaranteed to grant us success. That He is going to prosper us. That God granted success to a, a servant seeking a wife for Isaac in a distant land with ten camels as on watering episode. That He can fulfill that is once again more evidence that He can sustain us. And He can grant success to His people who live as we are to live for His glory, for the, the growth and edification of one another, and, and for, the, for the fame of His name to all the nations. That is, that God is going to grant success that, that His people might be to His renown, to His people being built up, and to the world being evangelized. It happens through people. Let's pray that God would continue to show us His faithfulness, His providence, His sustaining power, and let's live in that. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for speaking. I pray that we would hear. God, may we see your character. I, I pray that when we open your word, we would come face to face with you. And that that would be what, have, what has happened this morning. We've seen you once again. Your good and providential care over us. Your life-sustaining work in us. Your supernatural intervention to be faithful to your promises over and over and over again. God, may we be a people that really is a people that is working for the fame of your name. May we not exist so that the name of Sojourn or that our own name might be proclaimed and heralded and known, but God, may we exist so that your name might be known throughout all the earth. Build us up in love and help us to build one another up in love that this might happen and send us out. May we have no retreats, no fears, no worries. Not that we don't see all that's going on in the world and are just kind of naive, but God, that we see our God and we see you. And we don't need to fear when you are with us. And so God, thank you for your promises. Help us to live our lives in alignment with them. Amen.